Winning baseball is back in Philadelphia. The Phils have won four of the last six, led by the golden arm of Aaron Nola. We'll talk about that. Also, J.P. Crawford in Lehigh Valley. Is it time for him to come up? He's hitting really well. More on that as well. Our guest today is Todd Callis, the son of legendary Phils broadcaster Harry Callis. Talks about that, of course, plus this great Houston Astro team that he's calling every day. They're coming to Philly today. Look out. The Phillies Asia podcast is on. Phillies Nation! Welcome to the Phillies Nation podcast, episode number 18. I'm Tim Malcolm, the editorial director of philliesnation.com. We do this podcast every Monday where you can get quite a bit of news, some opinion, some rumors, and some good discussion. And we'll get that all the time at philliesnation.com. If you just log on today, it's right there for you if you'd like to check out more. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash philliesnation and Instagram at philliesnation underscore and Twitter at philliesnation. You can listen to the podcast on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spreaker, TuneIn Radio, and youtube.com slash philliesnation. Please review us on iTunes and Apple Podcasts. We'd love to get your reviews, five-star reviews. We want to be able to get to more people. We want more people to listen and uh, enjoy what we're bringing out to you. We do this totally for free, totally voluntary, and we'd love to get your input on how it is done and what we can do better because there's always stuff that we can do better, right? Just like the team that we follow, the Philadelphia Phillies. There's always stuff that they can do better. Oh, sure. This week's podcast, we have a great one on tap for you. I had an awesome conversation with someone who... We remember from back in the 90s, and of course, he had been around Philadelphia for so many years, uh, being a son of, I guess, royalty, you want to call it, in Philadelphia, sports legend, uh, one of the greatest broadcasters of all time, the late, great Harry Callis. I talked to his son, Todd Callis, who is the play-by-play voice for the Houston Astros on AT&T Sportsnet Southwest. Uh, It's his first full-time lead play-by-play guy job in baseball, and uh couldn't have gone to a better person. Todd is a great announcer and a really cool person. We had a great conversation with him just a few days ago. So we'll talk about the Astros. We'll talk about Philadelphia growing up. And, of course, uh, Harry Callis, his father, and what he means to the city and how great it is for Todd to come back and be home for a couple of days. The Astros coming in today should be a good series. The Astros, very good team, uh, very good team. So it'll be, it'll be fun to watch a good team take on the Phillies and see if the Phillies can kind of match up with them a little bit. Uh, they are playing much better now. They've won four of their last six. They defeated Miami two out of three and then defeated Milwaukee two out of three. So good play so far from the Phillies in the second half. And maybe we'll see a little bit of a turnaround here. Maybe they won't be the absolute worst team in baseball this year. Maybe maybe they'll still be the worst team, but maybe just by a hair or two. We'll see. Also on the podcast today, I talked to Mike Sadowski of philliesnation.com. We talked about Aaron Nola and the rotation. Aaron Nola's pitching tremendously over the past six starts here. And we talked about J.P. Crawford. That'll be much later on in the show. Crawford hitting very well in Lehigh Valley. He's finally showing some of that uh, contact ability that we've been waiting to see for a while. And we'll talk about what that means for his future this year and beyond. And some housekeeping for you real quick. So Monday is the trade deadline. It's July 31st, just next week. And the Phillies right now probably will make... At least one deal. Pat Neshek looks like he'll be on the move. Someone somewhere will take him, and the Phillies will get something in return, hopefully. 
Otherwise, maybe Jeremy Hellickson, although he hasn't pitched very well his last maybe one or two starts here. We'll see if a team will take a flyer on him. Also, Daniel Nava, Howie Kendrick. There's a lot of talk that maybe those two guys will be August waiver claim uh, deadline guys, and that could happen. But maybe they'll be uh, traded before Monday or on Monday. We'll see what happens there. And then there's always the possibility of something larger and something more ridiculous, like a Giancarlo Stanton trade or a Christian Yelich trade, which I do not think will happen over the next week. But we will talk about it all. We will have a special podcast on Friday to kind of preview what the trade deadline will bring. We'll just talk about what sort of return we'll get for potentially some of these guys on the team. And, um, you know, what could work for the Phillies if they were trying to make a big deal before Monday. Uh, that'll come out Friday, and depending on what happens, we'll do a podcast on Monday to kind of wrap it up. We'll see how it goes. If it's very minor, we might not do one, but we'll see what happens uh, as we get closer to it. Meanwhile, the Phillies, as I said, are playing very well, and they're doing it both by pitching. We'll talk about Aaron Nolan a little bit, how well he's doing. Jared Eikhoff had a very good start on Sunday against the Brewers. It was good to see. Vince Velasquez came back and actually pitched pretty well against Miami, so maybe we'll see him go a little bit deeper into games over the next few starts and ramp up those strikeouts a bit and just be a little bit more of a, I guess, pitching inside himself uh, kind of pitcher. We'll see what happens. If that doesn't work, then maybe next year is a different story for Vince Velasquez, whether he's coming out of the bullpen or pitching for another team entirely or maybe in Lehigh Valley to kind of spruce himself up. We'll see. But good to see Velasquez at least start on a good foot here after the injury. And it's great to see... We continue to talk about him, Nick Williams. He is really hitting the ball well and a fun thing to watch with this team. I think we've been waiting for somebody to kind of bring some excitement to this team for a while. You know, Dubal Herrera, uh, he's, by the way, on a hot streak right now. Now he's up to 271 with a 313 uh, on-base percentage and a 436 slug. He's getting very close to being the regular Odubel Herrera again. And I think by the season end, we're going to see Odubel be, oh, regular old Odubel. And I think we'll kind of uh, forget that he had a really tough start to the year. It's a shame because it kind of hurt the Phillies in the early going. But Odubel's not the only thing that hurt this team. Michael Franco wasn't hitting well to start the year. He's actually been a little bit better recently. He's up to a 686 uh, uh, OPS, 398 slug. It's got to get better than that. But it looks like he's starting to try to get out of a funk again. Um, but again, Nick Williams, 309 batting average, 347 on base percentage, 603 slug, four home runs. He hit another one on Sunday, four doubles two triples. He's got speed. He looks a little bit uh, awkward on the base pass uh, when he's trying to run, especially to second or third base. So that's something to look out for. But Nick Williams looks like a real keeper at this moment. And I think if you're the Phillies, you're going to start him every day up until the end of the year. He's part of this team next year, unless something changes there. But his play is not determined that he is a a bust or anything like that. He looks like a real uh, major league player capable of helping change a game around and change a team's fortunes around. So that's good to see because we haven't had something like that in a while on the offense. Meanwhile, Aaron Altair, who got hurt, obviously, with a hamstring injury a few weeks back, there were a lot of talks that maybe he'd be out for a very long time. That has actually changed in the last two days. uh, Our friend uh, Matt uh, Breen reporting with Philly.com that Altair might be back as early as Tuesday from his hamstring injury. Now, if I'm the Phillies... If Altair is 100% and he really is ready to go, fine. Throw him out there. It's fine. But don't push Aaron Altair. 
This guy has been one of the real bright spots for the Phillies this year, hitting 288 with a 359 OBP and a 539 slug. Very good season for Aaron Altair. If you bring him back too early and he re-aggravates an injury or something like that, that's a big problem. We don't want to have that problem, especially with a team that is so far out of, of, of fourth place as the Phillies are. No need to bring Aaron Altair in that quickly. If he's healthy, 100% ready to go, fine. But if he's not, get Daniel Nava more time. See if you can move him at the deadline. Get Howie Kendrick more time. See if you can move him at the deadline. Don't worry too much about Aaron Altair. But we'll see what happens over the next couple of days. If he is really good to go, then that's great. And luckily he won't be, uh, he'll be healthy. And that's, that's the best possible thing that you'd want. Otherwise, you know, we're still kind of waiting for things. Tommy Joseph, would he be traded the deadline? I mean, he's not hitting too well this year. 246 with a 441 slug, 15 home runs. I don't know. There's not much of a market. And by the way, the Yankees picking up Todd Frazier from Cincinnati, excuse me, the, the White Sox. He was on Cincinnati years ago. That means that the Yankees don't need a first baseman potentially. He's probably going to play some first. So is there a market for Tommy Joseph? I'm not sure there is. So the Phillies are in a little bit of a pickle right now as far as their offense. They need to figure out how they can move some of these guys. At least the pitching is good. Why don't we talk about that right now? I want to bring in Mike Sadowski of philliesnation.com now to talk about the pitching staff and especially Aaron Nola, who has been terrific, especially in his last six starts. He has a 1.70 ERA, 50 strikeouts and 13 walks. Opponents are hitting just 190 against him and a 2.53 on base percentage against him. So quite good there for the season. He has a 3.38 ERA, 97 strikeouts. He has a whip of 1.189. Terrific numbers all around. And I ask you, Mike, is this the Aaron Nola that uh, finally is going to take a leap here and be a top-flight starter for the Phillies? Do you think we are seeing the best Aaron Nola right now? This last sort of month and a half, uh, it kind of reminds me of the, the the line from Dark Knight. I mean, he's the Philly that, that this Philadelphia needs right now. Um, he's This is the Aaron Nola we need. We can't have the Aaron Nola that gets hurt every now and then, that comes down with an elbow problem every now and then, and like nothing serious, but enough to put him on the DL for a month. This is the Aaron Nola we need right now. Um, one who can absolutely be a number two, maybe possibly if everything breaks right, a number one. Um, but I mean, when they drafted him, this was the Aaron Nola they drafted. Uh, and I think that's that. This is the one the team needs and is counting on or else one piece of the rebuild is not going to happen. Yeah, I want to point you to some numbers that I found at brooksbaseball.com. They do a terrific job. They have the pitch FX tool, and they chart pitcher performance uh, game by game. And Aaron Nola, in his last few yeah. starts, has really relied a lot more on the changeup. In July, he's actually thrown it about 19% of the time, which is up from about under 10% from last year. He was throwing it more in 2015, but it's now back, and really more than ever he's using it at the expense of the curveball. The curveball, he's now only throwing about 24% of the time. He yeah. used to throw it about 30 to 35% of the time. So clearly he's showing that that third pitch, the changeup, is finally becoming a real asset for him uh, when he's pitching. Yeah, and you see that a lot. I mean, this is only his, what, third year in the big leagues? I mean, you, you don't figure out how to pitch in the big leagues for a couple of years. So maybe it just took him that long, and, and pitching coaches take that long to learn about you too. So maybe this is just a case of, Hey, these first two years, we we're still—you were still feeling the league out. We were still feeling you out as a, as as a pitcher, 
and now we're at a place where we can start playing to your strengths and, and minimizing your weaknesses. Um, it could just be the, the last couple of years could have just been like a learning curve and they weren't that bad to begin with. Uh, and I know, and you were talking at the, how the, the first month is ERA was, was up around five, but when you looked under the hood, I mean, his FIP was like right around three. So you, it, it looked like all the time, like he was going to come back. I didn't think he was going to come back to this extent, but I, but it's been really nice to watch him pitch. And you're right. I'm surprised that no one seems to have asked him. No one's picked up on this, that he is throwing that change more. Um, I think they've said it on the broadcast that he has been doing it more, which is surprising that, uh, that Tom McCarthy would pick up on it before some of the writers would. But uh, uh, I, I wish someone would ask him about it so he can say, like, yeah, w- this is we, we've been working on this. This is one of the things we're working on, and we want to bring that change in and start incorporating it more. Um, but I don't know if, if he just maybe thought he was, wasn't getting the curve around right or wasn't what, was getting hit of or guys were sitting on it, whatever. The fact that he has been able to bring this change in and make it an effective pitch, I think, is only, if, if that's what's making him better, fantastic. Let's keep going with it. Okay, so you said that you see that a lot with pitchers uh, the first couple years of their career. And I think of two pitchers specifically, one being Cole Hamels, who in his first couple years in the league had that fastball changeup combination, got a lot of guys out with those two pitches really exclusively. And then around year four or so, year three or four, about 2009 really was when it happened, guys started to figure yeah. it out that he had those two pitches and he wasn't really throwing anything else. Well, then he started to develop that curveball, which was – earlier on a bad pitch for him and he got that into a place where he could use it more uh, uh more powerfully and then the cutter came in years after that yeah. and he really became this sort of top flight pitcher when that cutter really made uh made sense for him the other pitcher that i think about is kyle kendrick who kind of the opposite track of cole hamels he started off as well two pitches fastball sinker guys weren't hitting those pitches in 2007 when he uh came up with the phillies extremely good first 10 starts, 15 starts using that fastball and sinker. But right away, guys started to figure that out and it really didn't take too long before Kyle Kendrick became this sort of one-dimensional pitcher who, you know, he didn't get to develop that third pitch well enough. He didn't get to develop the fourth pitch well enough. He tried with the cutter with Roy Howard. It didn't work out. And that's the difference between being a top flight starter in the league and being in triple A for most of your career and having to try to fight to make the majors. If you don't develop those other pitches, you're not going to make it, you know, into into uh, being a regular, you know, well paid starting pitcher. And that's what Aaron Nola is starting to figure out right now. Yeah, I can definitely see that. And you're talking about two absolutely diverging paths when you talk about Cole Hamels and Kyle Hendrick. I mean, and I remember Cole Hamels too was a lot. Of, and I don't know if this was the case with Nola, but uh, Cole Hamels, his a lot of his problems we we saw were from he was a perfectionist, and the he wanted he was thinking that he was going out throwing a no hitter every single solitary game, and you could tell like that he'd he'd get to like the fourth inning he'd finally give up a hit and he'd he'd be really pissed off at himself and then end up giving up three more hits. Um, so I mean I don't know that. There, there could have been something going on in, in Nola's head where he just had to figure out how to pitch in the big leagues. Like, you can't – someone finally got to Hamels and said, you are not going to throw a no-hitter every time you go out. Um, so, and, and he finally accepted – it took him like two years to accept that. Um, and then he, then he buckled down and became one of the best pitchers in baseball. So I don't know, maybe there was something in Nola's head too. And obviously there's been – he's had injury issues. 
Um, so I'm what I'm looking for for him through the rest of the year is to pitch every fifth day. Uh, I want to see. I I don't want to see him shut down for no reason other than usage. Um, I just want to see him pitch every fifth day for the rest of the year, uh, and and look good. And let's not let's stop babying him. Let, let, let's not make him another MB. Let's stop babying him. Push him out there and let him pitch every fifth day from now until the beginning of October. And then I would consider if, if he's still throwing like this, I would consider his season an absolute success. Okay, so we know Nola looks like the future here. You know, I don't want to talk about trades with Aaron Nola because I don't think it's worth it for the Phillies to even explore a trade for Aaron Nola. Uh, he's the only young pitcher that they have that's he's, that's actually been successful. So I don't think it's a really smart move for the Phillies to do that. But they do have to figure out what next year's rotation looks like. And you have Nola, but then you have what? Jeremy Hellickson probably won't be here next yep. year. Jared Eikhoff has a four seven one ERA. Uh, he pitched well on Sunday against Milwaukee, but you know, still we're trying to figure out what he's going to be if he is a four starter the rest of his career. Maybe he's more than that. Who knows? Nick Pavetta had some struggles this year. Vince Velasquez has been Vince Velasquez. Ben Lively came up and pitched decently. Zach Eflin has hurt a lot. Uh, Jake Thompson didn't pitch too well when he was up here. So the Phillies still need to figure out what they have in this rotation beyond Aaron Nola. And let me ask you, Mike, do you know, what, what do you think? What do you think this 2018 Phillies rotation is going to look like? I have no stinking idea. I don't, I don't, and I don't know anyone who does. Um, I, it's, I'm at a loss. I, you're, you're going to have to just go with Nola and hopefully then whoever is best. This is, this is now a three-month audition or two-and-a-half-month audition for four spots next year. And I haven't seen anyone that has earned a spot for next year other than Nola. I'd like to see Eshelman come up and get a shot, although I don't want I'm not putting any hopes on that whatsoever. I think he he's Joe Ola the second. Um but I I, I they're just gonna have to go into the offseason with a clean slate and just absolutely think about any possibilities whatsoever. Um hey, who knows? Maybe they bring back Clay Buckles. But uh, that's a joke. I really hope they don't bring it back. Okay, okay. I wasn't sure if it was a joke or not. <laughs> so, so I okay, going into next year, Nola, I think, you know, one of Velasquez or Lively or Pavetta or even Eflin is going to be part of this rotation too. But then I feel like you might have to fill up maybe three spots, at least two. Um, and Buck Holtz isn't one of them, but uh, you know, I think they're going to have to go out and get somebody. Maybe this is the off season. Maybe this is the trade deadline where you go and get a bigger name star. You know, we're not talking Giancarlo Stanton or anything like that, but maybe there is sort of a top flight pitcher that you can pick up at the trade deadline. You know, maybe the off season, you Darvish or Jake Arrieta, even though he's had a tough year, but maybe this is the time that they get some sort of a bigger name pitcher. Maybe it's, maybe it's as early like as next see, week. And I'd like to see them. I'd like to see them maybe be a, cause they, the one thing they have in this, for, in this organization is assets. So maybe take a shot at Sonny Gray here coming up at the, at the deadline. They, they might be able to offer the best package for, for to the A's for Sonny Gray. I don't see you. It's worth a phone call, at least. Um, so I, I don't know. If, if they can be a player for Sonny Gray, do it. He's still under team contract for, I believe, two more years after this year. So, I mean, there's no reason you can't do something like that. 
Well, it'll be interesting. The trade deadline is coming up next Monday, and who knows? Maybe the Phillies will make some sort of a big move like that. I don't know if that's going to happen, but surely they have a lot of holes to fill, so you never know. This this could be something they do, but at least we know that Aaron Nola will be part of this rotation next year, barring any sort of wild moves that the Phillies decide to make between now and next April. Mike Sadowski, we will talk to you later on in the show. Sounds good, Tim. The Houston Astros come into Philadelphia on Monday today. Uh, they're playing the Phillies over a three-game set at Citizens Bank Park. And while it's kind of new for us to see the Astros for the first time in a couple of years, for one person coming with the Astros, it'll be a homecoming in a bigger sense. Todd Callis is the play-by-play voice of the Houston Astros on television on AT&T Sportsnet Southwest. He's coming back home to call some games for the Astros here at Citizens Bank. And Todd is on the podcast. Welcome, Todd Callis, to the Phillies Nation podcast. Thank you very much. Looking forward to checking out Philadelphia and Citizens Bank Park again. So uh, before we get into sort of your story, because obviously everybody kind of knows your story, but wants to kind of catch up with you, uh, first off, congratulations, I guess. This is your first time being a exclusive play-by-play guy on a team for the first time in your career. Is that right? Yeah, first full season gig. I did uh, a forty game schedule with Prism in the Phillies back in the mid nineties, and uh, with the Rays more recently, I had been with them for nineteen years and ended up filling in on about ten or fifteen games. Probably did more than that when I was with the Mets on the radio side filling in. Uh, so I've always had a chance to do some play by play every year of my career, but it wasn't until this year that I had an opportunity to do a full season. And, and how are you doing so far? Are you comfortable with the new, I mean, it's a new team, it's a new situation, new city. Do you feel like you're kind of in a groove now? Yeah, I think so. I mean, the first month or two, you know, it, it's a little bit crazy just trying to, it's a whole different game trying to prep for a play-by-play broadcast as opposed to what I was doing with the pre- and post-game show and in-game hits. Um, so, yeah, from that standpoint, it was a little bit of a transition, but it's something I always wanted to do. I always thought about uh, being a big league, TV or radio full-time play-by-play guy was probably where my skills fit best. So getting a chance to do it now is really cool, and I wasn't sure along the way if that full-season gig was ever going to come around. So jumping into it with a team like the Astros and doing what they're doing, it's been a perfect 2017. Yeah, seriously. I mean, you couldn't have asked for a better beginning here. Uh, The Astros are currently 64-32 and as we're recording this. They're just playing unbelievable baseball. And so what it is, uh, what is it? Because Phillies fans, I'm sure, don't quite know how the Astros are doing. They're not really watching. What is it about this Astros team this year that is just so special? To me, the thing that sets them apart from most is their offense is just absolutely relentless. You can go one through nine and not find a hole in there, and their bench is deep, too. They only have a three-man bench, but they all can come in and contribute and have uh, all year long. So, even with the injury to Carlos Correa, which will obviously be a blow, he's the best shortstop in my book in the in the major leagues, and he's only 22 years old. And if he's not the best now, he's going to be very shortly. Uh, even without Correa, this is a very good offense. Uh, it's a team that has been hitting unbelievably well away from this year. We're already, as you said, almost 100 games into the season. So it's kind of crazy to think about how good their offense is. Their, their pitching has been good enough. Uh, despite injuries to Dallas Keuchel and Charlie Morton, the former Philly, along the way, uh, Lance McCullers had a short stint on the DL, and then uh, they hadn't seen Colin McHugh all season long until his first start on Saturday at Oriole Park at Camden Yard. So it's been an injury-plagued year with the rotation, 
but their offense has been good enough and their bullpen's been good enough to get them uh, where they are now. Yeah, and and I know that there's been a lot of rumors about the Astros potentially looking at Sonny Gray or someone in the pitching market, and rumors are rumors, and we'll see what happens in the next week or so. But it almost seems as if the Astros don't really need to tinker with the team at this point. Maybe they will, but what, 17 games up on Seattle in the American League West, which seems like uh, that's like the 1992. One Braves or something, you know, just way out in front of everybody else. Um, are you astonished night after night about what you're watching here? Because you've seen a lot of great teams in your life as, as an announcer with the Rays, of course, in 2008 and a couple of years after that uh, with the Phillies, uh, you know, as a kid growing up. Is this maybe the best collection of baseball team that you have seen in your life? It's right up there. Uh, There's still a ways to go. 66 games is a good chunk of the season left, so Remains to be seen how many wins they end up with. But, yeah, I would say this team is right up there with this, any of the playoff teams I've seen before, whether with the Phillies or or with the Rays. Uh, the, the thing about this Astros team is, you're right, you don't know what they want to do with the trade deadline, and that's going to be an intriguing final week and a half leading up to the trade deadline. But I think there's two ways to look at it. If they're strictly concerned about getting to the postseason, they don't need to make a move. They're 17 games up with 66 games to go. They're basically uh, can coast home. It would be an epic collapse to um, not have the Houston Astros in the 2017 postseason. But the other way you can look at it is what's your best chance to win in the postseason and get a World Series ring. And if you're looking at it from that vantage point, possibly there's a player or two that can help this team uh, get across that finish line. But uh, to go back to your original question, yes, this is as talented a team that I've been with, and it's rare to see a team this far into the season, 96 games in, with it, with winning two out of every three games. Yeah, and it's such an energetic, fun team. I would hate to see this team get to the playoffs and then have to rely on Dallas Keuchel every couple of days to just you know get the get the win that's necessary. Keuchel, by the way, having a great year, should be coming back from an injury soon. Had a rehab start yesterday, I believe. So uh, good stuff all around, or today, uh, Saturday, that is. Uh, so good stuff all around for the Astros. Um, as for you, this is a homecoming of sorts for you, just being with the Astros, because you were born in, in Houston. Uh, your father was the Astros announcer for a few years there, starting in 65, I believe, was when you were born. Um, so what, what, do you have memories of being in Houston as a kid, uh, growing up there? I mean, I know it was a couple of years, but do you remember being to the Astrodome, things like that? I do. They're vague memories. Uh, certainly growing up, I, I knew Veterans Stadium as well as anybody. I was a kid that basically spent half of his summers hanging out at the ballpark there uh, at Veterans Stadium. So uh, going back to the Astrodome, yes, there are vague memories. I remember kind of the exploding scoreboard. That was something that was important as a kid. Uh, there was an Astro World amusement park right across the street uh, from um, the Astrodome that we spent a lot of time in. So there are certain things I remember as a youngster. I was just a toddler, as you mentioned, before we, we moved to Philadelphia. But, uh, yeah, it's kind of cool how the worlds have now uh, come around full circle, and I'm now living in Houston where I was born, and uh, here we are with the Astros playing the Phillies. So a lot of cool things going on right now in my uh, different worlds all coming together. Yeah, and and, and talk about, like, I, I was just thinking about this before talking to you, that if, I know you've probably come back to Citizens Bank Park since your father's passing, right? You were there with the Rays a few years back, is that right? Yeah, I was there as soon as, you know, right after he passed away and then when the Rays came back a couple of years ago, yes. So so for you coming back to the park, it must be, I, I don't know if it's surreal or, or special or you can give me the words, but coming to the park and I don't know if I've ever been to a ballpark where an announcer 
has such an uh, an imprint on the park and, and is so revered and, and has so many little mementos. You have the restaurant, you have the statue, you have the home run call after the Phillies win, after the Phillies get a home run, and then high hopes after the Phillies win a game. I mean, every, I mean, your father's you know legacy is is all over the place. So what what is that like for you coming back and you know in your professional capacity you have to do your job, but it must be a, a different experience for you than anybody else would ever have coming to a park like that. Yeah, it's really cool. I mean, I, I love the fact that you know, here we are, 2017, and so it's been eight years since Dad passed away, and it, it still is. It feels like it wasn't that long ago, and uh, it still is, to me, a, a, such an honor to see what the Phillies have done to keep his legacy going and uh, to have all those things that you mentioned, the restaurant, the statue, the calls that keep getting played, the high hopes after the game. Uh it was an unbelievable time uh, for Dad and, and the Phillies fans and the Phillies organization. I mean, uh, he is so embedded into their history, and to see them continue uh, to pay homage to Dad and what he meant to that team is, is really cool. And I, I, I do. I really appreciate every chance I do get it to to go to Philadelphia and, and do games and work games at Citizens Bank Park. But I also get to see you know, from afar what's going on there and, and how much uh, he meant to the city and meant to the team. And uh, it's something I will cherish always. Certainly. Um, what was it like as a kid going to Veterans Stadium? You said you had tons of memories and you spent most of your time there as a kid with your dad and, and just walking around. I'm sure you were probably friends with some of the players, kids, and stuff like that. Was that was that what's going on there at the vet? Yeah, that was part of it. Um, dad spent a lot of time at the ballpark, and we usually went in early with him. And so... Uh, my brother and I, you know, would find games going on down in the bowels of the stadium. They had a little basketball court not far from the hitting cage, so we could shoot hoops sometimes. We'd play wall ball for hours down there in the uh, in the basement of the Veterans Stadium. Uh, at the time, you know, various kids, some of them who played at the big league level, the Boone kids were down there. Aaron and Brett were always around. Uh, Gary Maddox's kids, Gary Jr. and Derek were always around. Ryan Lazinski. Uh, so, yeah, I, a little bit of interaction with those guys but a lot of it was just uh, my brother and I hanging around and finding out whatever game we could to kill time while dad was prepping for the game and then uh, getting ready after the game to head home. Uh, were you ever a bad boy or anything like that? I don't I don't, I don't know if I remember heard those kinds of stories but were you a bad boy or anything like that? No never a bad boy those guys were pretty much hired by the team and worked year round and we, okay. uh, we got to go to the games mostly in the summertime when there wasn't school so I don't, I don't think I could have made 81 games at that point but uh a couple times got to shag some balls in the outfield for early batting practice things of that nature uh, but never a bad boy so you were uh i guess coming of age teenager uh during the Phil the phillies great run of the late 70s and early 80s obviously 1980 was a huge year uh what was that like for you because i'm sure you were just a mammoth phillies fan you were going to games you got to experience all of it with your dad um just kind of paint a picture of how that sort of era was, those classic years. Yeah, 80 was probably the most fun and and the most exciting year growing up just because of all those years of close calls in 76 and 77 and 78, and then for them to get over the top and win it all in 80. And you know, I remember going to the parade at JFK Stadium, and just that whole season was phenomenal. And to be a, a kid at age 15, which was a great age to be, or I guess I was 14 that year, a uh, great age to be where you know enough about the history of the Philadelphia Phillies and know how important it was uh, as an organization and also 
still kind of have that youthful exuberance that you can just let loose and be a total fan. It was a, it was a cool age to watch the Phillies win it all, and that's a team that I will never forget. Certainly, Mike Schmidt was always as a young kid. He was always my favorite player growing up. He and yeah. Todd Cruz, of all people, Todd Cruz because he shared my name, uh, and then and then Mike Schmidt were always my two favorite Phillies, uh, and then obviously Schmitty would have the career he did. But ever since he came up uh, early in his career, 1972-73, he was the guy I watched and, and was hoping would do the best. Now are, you're still in contact with all those guys, I'm sure, right? Do you still talk to Mike and 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 you know Lusinski and and all the sort of characters from that from that era? I do. I see those guys every once in a while. Mike Schmidt and his wife Donna still live down in Florida, uh, and they have a, a golf tournament that Mike plays in, and he comes over for spring training over on the Tampa side. He'll play in that uh, Valspar Championship over at Innisbrook, where where the PGA Tour goes through in March, and then he'll be at Philly Spring Training. So I'll see Mike occasionally. The Bull I usually only see when either I'm in Philadelphia and he's out there at the barbecue pit or uh, see him sometimes for um, down in spring training. But, uh, yeah, I see those guys occasionally. Always seem to cross paths with Phillies people uh, in Clearwater, especially in the months of February and March. Do people actually, uh, even in Houston, do people sort of talk to you about your father, things like that? Or were you, have you been able to sort of carve out yourself and people know you as Doc Alex? Uh, it's a little interesting dynamic, Tim. It's not quite the same as in Philadelphia. In Philadelphia, obviously, I mean, Dad being there from 1971 until 2009 as the broadcaster and all those memories, it, it's going to be a pretty much everyday occurrence when I'm in Philly that somebody or multiple people will talk to me about Dad, and I really appreciate that. I never... I, I never want the, the memory to fade, and I always want people to, to bring up their favorite stories about Dad. I love that. Uh, Houston's a little different. It's just um, so many years in between, and Dad's last year being 1970 there. Uh, there are still definitely people that remember him being a member of the Houston Astros broadcast team and the original team after they moved, uh, after they didn't move, after they, they switched from being the Colt 45s and became the Astros. So, yes, there are a lot of people that remember Dad, but it's certainly a different segment of the population and a smaller segment of the population uh, that have the, the constant memories that I get when I'm back in Philadelphia. Right. Um, so you uh, went to Syracuse and then started your broadcast career after that. You ended up, uh, funny enough, working for the Mets for a couple of years, and that was during the 93 season as well. I was just wondering, like, what was it like as a as, – I mean, I had read some things about how you were really sort of green in that era and you were nervous because you were with a lot of different great broadcasters of that era and you were very young. Um, but what was it like calling, you know, Mets games at a time when the Phillies were – uh, obviously captivating the entire country with their play. Yeah, that was that was pretty cool. I was just happy to, to get an opportunity. I was very fortunate after one year in the minor leagues to get a major league job with the New York Mets. Uh, so that was the 92-93 season. The Mets were not very good vet back then, uh, two of their worst teams ever. Um, and then the Phillies in 93, of course, were doing their thing and winning the National League Championship. So it was uh, – it was cool. It was it was cool to be that close to the, see what the Phillies were doing, but at the same time, it was a little unusual being on a different team. Although the Mets weren't really uh, going head to head with them in terms of trying to win the division those two years, uh, but my two years with the Mets were incredible. I, I never imagined that I would be in New York at age 25 and working with legendary broadcasters like Bob Murphy and Gary Cohen on the radio side and uh, on the TV side. It was Ralph Kiner and Tim McCarver and. 
uh, all those guys doing their thing. So it was a cool time as a young broadcaster to be there and really grasp everything. And uh, it, Like I said, it wasn't the best, two best seasons, and uh, it wasn't the best baseball in New York at that time, and it was kind of a strange uh, situation in terms of their wins and losses with a team that they thought was going to do a lot better. But anyhow, it was a great learning ground, and uh, I learned a lot while I was there, and I certainly always look back on those Mets years and thank them for giving me my first opportunity to be a major league broadcaster with 25 years ago. And, and I, I've asked uh, broadcasters, because I love working with the Mets, and, and because you spent so much of your life around the Phillies and surrounded by the Phillies in a veteran stadium and that was your life, I've asked a lot of broadcasters and, and reporters, you know, how how are you able to sort of be objective and be you know, calling games for that team while still growing up, you know, with a rifle or something like that? So with you, it must not have been that hard. I mean, it sounds like you were able to kind of transition over to that. Was, was that hard for you? No, it was it was relatively easy. I, and there were a few years separated between when I was living in Philadelphia full time. I graduated from Syracuse in December of '87, so I hadn't really been around Philly since the mid '80s. I lived up in Syracuse in uh, the last couple of summers before graduation, and then got a job at Delaware and went from Delaware down to uh, Clearwater, Florida, and then Clearwater, Florida to Louisville. So I really hadn't been really a part of the Phillies every day living in Philadelphia for about, I don't know, eight years prior to that Mets season. So there was a little bit of distance in between. So I think that helped uh, in terms of not being having any conflicts uh, growing up as a Phillies fan and then working for the Mets in 92. And then you went to the Rays. Uh, when the Rays actually started play as a Major League Baseball team, you were part of that broadcasting team, and you did a whole number of things with them for a number of years. Uh, and then in 2008, of course, they made the World Series, and lo and behold, they're playing the Phillies. That must have been a thrill. I mean, I know you had called part of Game 1 with your dad. Uh, you guys teamed up together. Is that right? Yeah, we called an inning at Tropicana Field. That was as cool as it gets. I mean, World Series, dad versus son, and, you know, <laughs> as it turns out, it was dad's last full season of Major League Baseball. So, yeah, it was one of those years you could never have scripted. If you scripted it and you saw a movie about it, you'd be like, well, that can't happen. The, the Tampa Bay Rays had just <laughs> become the Rays. They had never won more than 70 games in any of their first 10 years. So nobody, everybody thought they'd be better in 2008. Nobody thought they could get to the postseason, or certainly nobody thought they could get to the World Series. It was just one of those once-in-a-lifetime opportunities. And then for the Phillies to be the team they played in the World Series, we kind of knew all along and obviously I didn't know, you know, Dad's health would deteriorate the, the next year to the point where we would lose him. But we knew all along that that might be a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. And so we cherished every minute of that series. I, I made sure whenever we had a chance, we would eat our meals together, whether it was at media dining or before the game, grabbing lunch together. And uh, we just got to really spend a lot of good quality time together in that 2008 World Series. How how much, you know, broadcasting-wise – is your dad in you? I mean, it. I mean, I'm. You went to Syracuse, so you got some of the best education there is, you know, as far as broadcasting communications. But um, are there things that your dad taught you growing up that kind of stick with you when you're calling games? Uh, it wasn't as much of him giving lessons or teaching us as much as just kind of observed what he did. And I was up in the broadcast booth as a kid, kind of keeping the out of town scoreboard for them on Sunday afternoons and. Uh, I would always keep score of my own games and kind of kept my own little stats. So everybody was under the assumption that I would eventually end up 
well, where I am doing this thing for a living as a broadcaster, or at least that was my goal. And then I wasn't really sure, honestly. I was kind of in between what I wanted to do, and it wasn't until I transferred to Syracuse after my freshman year that I decided that baseball or that broadcasting was something I wanted to give a shot at and see if I could make a living out of it. And fortunately, it just worked out for me. But uh, yeah, I was uh, it was always fun being around the broadcast booth, and I think my influences from Dad were more just listening to him and hearing how he paced the game and what his rhythms were and what his intonations were. That's kind of become ingrained in me over the years, but it wasn't necessarily him sitting me down and saying, here's what you need to know if you ever want to become a broadcaster. Yeah, because when I listen to you, you know, it, I don't at all think about your dad when, when you call games. It's very you. It's Todd Callis, and, and it's a very smooth delivery, and you seem to be in your own groove. It, it, I know that takes a lot of time and work, you know, to be able to do that. Um, but, but you know, how how hard is that? You know, because it is your first year doing this, you know, full time, but you've had a lot of training doing it in the past. It, has it been sort of an easy transition to kind of get into that sort of broadcasting, this is my voice, you know, this is who I want to be calling these games? Yeah, I think it's been um, a little – it hasn't been too tough because it's something I've – like I said, even though I did – up to 40 games one a few years with Prism and 10 to 15, sometimes 25 with the Mets, but 10 to 15 a year with the Philly, or with the uh, Rays, excuse me. I, I've always had reps going into this season where I've done games, so um, kind of found my voice along the way somewhere in there where I found my, my pacing and my rhythm. And, yes, it is – there's certain things people hear, and they'll say, well, that sounded like your dad. But for the most part, uh, I do think we have our own distinct styles, and um, it, it's hard to replicate – dad style for sure and uh it's not something i have tried to emulate but uh, like i said in the previous question there are certain things you know intonations and pacing that i think you'll hear uh that come out every once in a while just based on me hearing dad's broadcasts for all those years well it's also a different game than it was when your dad was really in his prime i mean he also he was on the radio a lot more i think people kind of forget that he was the radio voice a lot so there was that sort of banter that he had with Richie Ashburn that was very different than what a play-by-play guy on television might do. And now the play-by-play guy on television doesn't seem to talk as much as he used to and kind of like lets the game sort of play out in front of him and lets his analysts shine a little bit more. The analysts are obviously star players, you know, from the past, things like that. So it feels like, you know, there's a difference in, in what uh, the broadcaster is expected to do this time around than it was maybe 20, 30 years ago. Oh, I think that's fair. I think when you look at baseball broadcasting through the years, it's definitely changed a little bit in terms of how it's been televised. There's so much information on the screen now, and uh, technology is so great that you can get you can get tons of information from a television broadcast without an announcer saying a word. It's just all up there on the screen for you. So uh, it becomes repetitious if you are too verbose and give too much information as a television play-by-play broadcaster. So. Uh, yeah, you try and find your spots and try and capture pictures, and you have to tee up. You know, you need to tee up your analyst because, as you said, ultimately, you know, in a television broadcast, the analyst I think is is the key star. So, it is a little bit different than back in Dad's day when when maybe you're you're describing a little bit more because there there weren't so, so many stats or so many quality pictures or so many graphics or drop-ins uh, that you have on the broadcast now. Uh, but at the same time, I will say that Dad's style, and he would go at times a pitch or two uh, without even saying anything, and sometimes that would be up to 30 or 45 seconds, and I, I don't think you see that as much mm-hmm. anymore. And that's something every once in a while that I, I, I don't I don't get scared from dead air because I've, I've just always heard 
the pace and the flow of Dad's broadcast, and, and he wasn't afraid to, to just let the natural sounds of the game go. And I think, you know, whether it's in the pause of a game, the natural flow where it just there's nothing to say, you don't say it, or if it's at the end of the game where a crowd can really carry the moment, that there's definitely times when uh, laying out from a broadcast is better than saying anything. Is there anybody today uh, broadcasting that you especially just think very highly of that you, you know, think, oh, this this person uh, is doing their job to the best of their abilities? Anybody that you look up to right now in the world? I always enjoy people that can make me laugh and make me laugh out loud. So there's definitely people that fit in that category. Uh, Skip Carey used to be the guy for me that when I was growing up used to make me laugh during a television broadcast. And I think John Miller does an incredible job. I don't hear him as much as I'd like since he's on the West Coast and he does most of his games on the radio for the Giants. But uh, those are two guys that stand out because I think they have always done a nice job of injecting humor into the course of 162-game schedule, and you need that. But uh, there are so many talented people around the league that uh, for me to start naming names would be crazy. But certainly <laughs> working with Gary Cohen uh, and watching his broadcast with the New York Mets, they are, if not the best crew, right up there amongst the best. The best. So I always enjoy his work. Uh, yeah, a lot of good people, and uh, the, the guys that make me laugh, whether it was Skip in the past or, or John currently, are, are usually the guys that I, I tend to, to list highly on my, my favorite broadcasters uh, topic. Yeah, and Gary Cohen uh, and, and Keith Hernandez and Ron Darling, they do a tremendous job. They're really, really good broadcasters. And I know Mets, I know people aren't Mets fans, but uh, if you ever get a chance to watch them on uh, SNY, it's really a treat. Um, I wanted to mention real quick, because you did this earlier in spring training uh, on your dad's birthday, you sort of t- took an old Astros call that he kind of pioneered, uh, and, and, and you used it in a couple uh, at-bats of two home runs in, a, in an Astros spring training game. Um, the call was what? That the ball's in Astros orbit? Is that right? Yeah, that ball is in Astros orbit. That was his call. And and so why why decide to do that? I mean it was his birthday, but but did you feel did you feel as if you know this was just the nicest and kind of the most poignant way to sort of pay tribute? Yeah, I mean people would ask me through the years about you know would I ever use Dad's calls, and I, I think I would never use that balls out of here. I mean that's that's just his, and yeah, even though even though you hear other people say it in different ways, I mean that's just it's so attached to Dad's call and for. 39 years with the Phillies, I would never, I would never use that call. And then people started to say, well, why not try that ball's in Astros orbit? You're now with the Astros. Dad hasn't used the call since the late 60s and 1970. And I was like, oh, I still, you know, I still need to find my own way, and I don't necessarily need to use one of Dad's calls. And then it just happened where we had a broadcast in spring training, and spring training's a nice opportunity to try things out and. Uh, it happened to be on, his, on what would have been his 81st birthday, so I'm like, all right, this is my little tip of the cap to both Dad's uh, legacy as a broadcaster and also his past roots with the Astros, so I figured for one day I could break that out. And if the Astros ever have another television game on a March 26th in the future, I'm sure I can break it out again, but uh, that's about it. I don't think you'll ever hear that ball's in Astros orbit other than on, on that day of the calendar. Yeah, I've, no, I think that's I think that's good. You know, you let your dad's voice speak for itself, and you'll be hearing it a lot this week when you're at Citizens Bank Park, I'm sure. Well, maybe you will, yeah, maybe not. <laughs> Depends on how the Phillies play, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I'm looking forward to I just yeah just being around there. I mean, seeing Harry the K's out in left field and the statue and all the reminders. Yeah, it's always it's always a great time when I come back and uh, 
very much looking forward to seeing all my friends and, and people that I consider part of my family that are in the Phillies organization and, and friends I grew up with around the Philadelphia area as well. Well, we're glad to see you come back for a couple of days and uh, hope hope the Astros do well so that you get to call some really important games this year, and I'm sure that, you know, they're on that way to doing that. So, uh, Todd Callis, congratulations on all the success so far, and uh, we'll, we'll be talking to you soon, hopefully, and uh, thanks for coming on the podcast. You got it, Tim. Nice to talk to you. All right, I bring back Mike Sadowski. We're going to talk prospects, uh, one in particular. But first, Mike, where can people find you on Twitter? You can find me at PhilzRule20. Can you spell that? P-H-I-L-Z-R-U-L-E-20. That's Phil's with a Z for those of you who <laughs> weren't sure if Mike was or was not stuck in the 1990s. That, that's what happens when you think up a Yahoo name when you're 21 years old and just coming just coming into the internet. I mean, hey, if if I was using my uh, old AOL screen name or email address for my Twitter handle today, I think I would not have any friends whatsoever right now. <laughs> okay, so we want to talk about J.P. Crawford, who in July has been quite good. 307 average with a 381 on base percentage, 667 slug. He has hit six home runs in the month of July with 13 runs batted in three doubles, three triples, all quite good numbers for him. On the year, he's 227 with a 334 OBP and a 368 slug. Mike, is this finally the J.P. Crawford that we thought we were going to get? I feel like it is, but I need your answer here. Do you think that this is the J.P. Crawford that we were hoping would be the number one prospect in the Philly system? Well, you can't see me right now because it's a podcast, but I am like doing the sign of the cross and, and saying a prayer to hope that it is. Um, this is, I have never been a JP Crawford fan for the last what, three years because why? Because the guy just didn't hit. Now I shouldn't, I, it, it's tough because I, I'm not a scout and I've only seen him play in person once in Harrisburg when he was with the, when he was with Reading. And he actually, I think he went like two for four with a, with a, a screaming line drive double. So there should be a, I, you would think I would like him, but man, he—he just—he never has given off like an air that he's going to hit. Um, every stop he's been to, just you look at his numbers and you look even beyond his numbers, and there's just at some point you have to—you can walk all you want, but at some point you have to hit. And he never—he never has. There, there was like a three-month stretch at the start of last year, right before he got promoted to AAA, like a two-month, I think like April and May, where he did like he—he he tore up Reading, so they promoted him. Um, but all the time in Lehigh Valley, except up the, the the end of last year and then the first two months, he just wasn't that good. Um, now he's always he's always had that on base percentage, which always which it, for me, when I look at prospects, that is the first thing I look at. What's what's the walk rate? What's your on base percentage? Um, because that is usually you talk to scouts and they'll tell you that is usually like the sure sign that so even if you're not hitting, you will hit. As long as you can control that strike zone, you're going to be able to hit. Um, for some reason, I just lost hope that J.P. Crawford would. Um, but he's proven me wrong now, and hopefully he proves me wrong for the next 15 years as a Philly. Well, I told you the July numbers, which are quite good, but he's really been this good since middle of May. He was hitting at a very good pace, hitting around 270 since the middle of May with an OBP around 370, uh, decent slugging percentage. The power has really come up lately. 
You know, I feel like this is finally J.P. Crawford being comfortable with AAA. I think I talked to Matt Province, uh, who was the play-by-play man for Lehigh Valley, um, and he talked about how J.P. is just a young guy, and it takes a while sometimes, and no prospect uh, develops at the same rate. His defense is still very good. His on-base percentage is has been good the whole time. Uh, he's a leader in the clubhouse kind of thing. You know, he's got all those intangibles that really work for a top prospect. But the hitting was the one thing. As you said, it was, you know, not there yet. And he really hasn't hit at a consistent rate since he was in Clearwater in 2015 when he was hitting over 300. But I think maybe finally he has gotten comfortable. And this is now him saying, yeah, I know how to hit at this level. I'm ready to move to the next level if this continues for a little bit longer. And that could totally be it, and I hope to God it is. Uh, but if if this maybe he just needed this time, this many at bats to get used to AAA pitching, and maybe he's going to have a rough time when he comes up and get, has, needs a, a a year or so to get used to major league pitching. Chase Utley did. Um, so I, I I'm ready to I'm ready to face the the early struggles with JP Crawford just as long as there is some kind of payoff down the road, and and. If what we're seeing now is is what he is, then it looks like we will see some kind of payoff somewhere down the line. Okay, so say that JP hits at this current pace still. He's you know getting to maybe 250 with a 350 or so uh, on base percentage. He's you know moved up a little bit more his numbers. He seems to be getting better and better. Is he the opening day starter at shortstop next season? Does he come up before that? Yes, he would be. As far as I'm concerned, he would be. As soon as Lehigh Valley is done with the playoffs, he's the starting shortstop for the for the end, the, the middle of September on those last two weeks because we're hoping that Lehigh Valley is going to go and, and win the International League. Um, but I bring him up the last two weeks and make him the starting shortstop. He's, at that point, he will have had, with the playoffs, probably about 800 AAA at-bats, almost 800, 900 AAA at-bats. Um, that's enough. That that is that is enough AAA at bats. Bring him up for the end of the season. Give him the cup of coffee. Let him get a little bit used to it. Let him get his feet wet. He has to be added to the forty man anyway. That at the end of this year, so you can't use that as an excuse that you're not bringing him up like like you might with Kingery. Um, but bring him up. Let him go through these th- those last couple weeks, and then he's my starting shortstop at the at the two thousand at the start of two thousand eighteen. Maybe and. And who knows what's going to happen in the off season? Maybe they've reached their breaking point with Franco, and they move Galvis over to third. I don't know, but or they just find someone to take Galvis. But they have too much invested in Crawford, and, and if these last three weeks are the player that Crawford is, you make room for him somehow, uh, and let him and just let him go. All right, so let me give you the opposite of that. What if J.P. Crawford actually regresses over the next couple months and doesn't? I mean, goes back to around 200? Do you think at that point he is still the opening day shortstop next season? I'm still thinking I'm going to bring him up and make him my opening day shortstop. Uh, by virtue of pedigree, by virtue of the, the, the investment they have in him, um, and by what your baseball people still seem to think is an everyday shortstop and uh, an, an all-star caliber everyday shortstop. Um, we need we need to see it. The the franchise, not not we as fans, but the franchise needs to see it. Is he going to be the guy? Because if he's not, then let's move on and figure out something. I, it, there's, I'm wondering if he might be what's holding up the 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 any Yelich Stanton stuff 
Um, because I, I think the Marlins sale is probably holding that one up. Yeah, uh, but I, I'm wondering if any deal that they have going, like is, people are calling asking about Crawford. Uh, the Phillies are the Phillies might not be saying no, but they might not be saying they might not be saying yes, but they might not be saying no either. So I think that J.P. Crawford has he might be he might be saving his time with the Phillies uh, if over the last three weeks um, because maybe they were maybe the Phillies were starting to get to the end of their rope. But I think that if anything, this last three three week stretch that he's had means that he's going to be a Philly probably in 2018. Well, yeah, J.P. Crawford certainly would be a you know one of the top prizes for any team. Still, I mean. I, People, I think, in the last few weeks have said, well, J.P. Crawford, well, I should say last year or so, has said that J.P. Crawford you know, may not be the top prospect in the system anymore, et cetera, et cetera. He's not that very good. There was a Baseball America thing where they said J.P. was pro- probably uh, much less of a prospect than we originally thought. I mean, he's still quite good, and teams are still going to want him. So he's definitely a chip for a team, and I think... At this point, if you're the Phillies and you've had all these prospects that are at this point now where they're, they've gotten to Lehigh Valley and, and they've groomed them so much, this is the time. Start bringing those guys up. I mean, when they're ready, you know, over this year and next year. Um, but, yeah, I think it's just a good move all around for the Phillies to really see what these guys have, especially Crawford, who we have for the past many years have uh, heard about him being the guy. He was the top prospect in the system. This is the time to give him the reins when he's ready. Yeah, and you know what? There, this It could be. It could actually end up being bad for morale too, um, because for some reason I I don't know why, but it's I don't know anything about it. I've never talked to you. I don't I don't follow it in the the morning call that much. But I mean, I, for some reason, it feels like there's like a a real camaraderie that's happening in Allentown. Um, it, it seems like that every time I see highlights, it seems like these guys really like each other. So I mean, if that group, Crawford, Cousins, Kingery. Uh, Hoskins. I mean, if they all come up together, I mean, it could, they they might be really good friends. And if they all come together and they start performing well, that's great. But I mean, if if one of them gets into a, a, a trade, maybe it is like a morale thing where they or they might not. They might end. Up, they might be really good friends. They might have something really going together. Well, yeah, there's been a lot of talk about how much J.P. Crawford is sort of a leader. In fact, when he came up to Lehigh Valley last year, they were in a playoff race, and Crawford came up and almost immediately was the leader of the team. Guys were acknowledging that he had this clubhouse presence that was not anybody, nobody else had that kind of presence. Plus, in spring training, you had Crawford working with Mickey Moniak, first-round pick of last year, uh, You know, just, just mentoring him and then mentoring other guys. Crawford seems to have this aura about him that is different from the other players in the system, and that's a big deal when you have a guy like that. So I think you bring him in, you surround him with core players, uh, players who are better probably, you know, elite players like a Mike Trout or something like that, and then you see this team take off. But it's going to take a little bit of time. Yeah, absolutely. I and. You know, I, as much as I am down, or I have been in the past, down on Crawford, bring him up. He's your 2018 starting shortstop, and let's get this thing moving. Yeah, let's get this thing moving indeed. Let's get J.P. Crawford up here sooner than later, uh, maybe this year in September. We'll see him. Mike Sadowski, PhilliesNation.com. Thanks for coming on the podcast, man. All right, Tim. Thanks for having me. All right, my thanks to Mike Sadowski, also to Todd Callis for talking with me about the Astros, about his father, about Philadelphia. Great conversation there. You can follow Todd, by the way, on Twitter at Real Todd Callis. Uh, that's R E A L T O D D K 
K-A-L-A-S, Real Todd Callis on Twitter. Thanks to bensound.com for the music for the podcast. Again, housekeeping, we're going to do a trade deadline podcast on Friday. Not sure how long it's going to be, but it will preview what might happen over the next couple days. Maybe there is a trade to talk about. We'll see what happens, but we'll definitely put that up on Friday. Also, our other podcast, uh, Playing the Rube, is coming up on Friday. We have another great episode for you. We start the 2009 season. If you don't know what that is, myself and Dan Walsh are playing out-of-the-park baseball 2018. As the 2009 Phillies, I am the general manager, not Ruben Amaro, and our job is to do a better job than Ruben Amaro Jr. at being the GM of the Phils. We have opening day coming up. We're playing the Braves. Really awesome stuff. You should check it out on all of your podcast outlets and platforms where you can find them. comes out on Friday. All right, so next week, we'll see what happens. Will there be a trade? Will there not be a trade? Probably be a trade, at least one. But will there be any surprises, any shocks, any fireworks? We will be here with all of that. You can check us out on philliesnation.com for all of your news info, rumors, much more, opinion, and Twitter and Instagram. We'll be humming the entire week here with a lot of trade deadline nonsense or good sense. We'll see what happens. For the Phillies Nation podcast, I am Tim Malcolm. We'll check you on Friday.